Welcome to the podcast of Selmore Baptist Church in Ozark, Missouri. To learn more about our church, please visit selmorebaptist.com. And now, here's the sermon. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Ecclesiastes. And we're going to be in chapter 9, and we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 7 through 12. This is sermon number seven in our 10-part series through this book, and we have just three more sermons left after today. If you've been with us throughout this series in Ecclesiastes, you know by now that this book can take on a rather philosophical, introspective, some might even say cynical tone at times. And I don't know if I'd go so far as to say cynical, but I would say that King Solomon in this book takes a very honest and a very real look at life. And it's a a perspective that in God's wisdom, he obviously thinks we need because he included it in his word. A good example of this tone uh, is the text that we looked at last week, Finding the Good in Grief, as you may recall, in which Solomon lays out the case that grieving teaches us things and benefits us in ways that joy and mirth cannot. If you remember last week, he said a funeral can be more beneficial for us to attend than a birthday party. And we said last week, that doesn't mean there's never a time for a good party. There certainly is. But the point of last week's passage is that we're denying ourselves of something very important if we never make time to reflect on our life. Well, for those who have perhaps found Ecclesiastes to be a little dark or a little sad, you're going to like today's passage because today's text provides some much-needed balance. The title of today's sermon is Living the Good Life. In chapter 9, Solomon puts forward his philosophy of life, and it's basically this. Everyone's going to die sometime, and none of us know when that will be, So while you're alive, you might as well live life to its fullest. In Latin, the expression for this is carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Now let me ask you this. When you think about living life to its fullest, what do you dream about? What does that look like for you? I think a lot of people, if they're being honest, might dream about a big house or a fancy car or exotic vacations, sipping a Diet Coke under a palm tree somewhere. And here's the thing about Solomon. Solomon had all of those things. They had Diet Coke back then. I don't know if you realize that. He didn't have the car, that is true, but I'm sure he had the Rolls Royce of chariots. Solomon was probably the wealthiest man in the entire world at the time that he was alive. But when he speaks in this passage about living life to the fullest and what that looks like, he doesn't talk about material things at all. In fact, what Solomon does talk about may surprise you. What we're going to discover this morning is that it's the little things. It's the blessings of God that we often take for granted that ultimately bring us the most joy and allow us to live life to its fullest. Indeed, in today's text, Solomon lists four keys to living the good life. So if you have a piece of paper, you might want to get it out and you can jot these down. Four keys to living the good life. And if we are wise, we will soak this godly wisdom in this morning and it may just change our entire outlook on life. 
So let's begin reading our passage now. Let's look at the first piece of advice that Solomon has for us in living the good life. And it's in chapter 9 and verse 7. Here is what he says. Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. All right, here's the first key to living the good life. Here's what you can write down. Eat a good meal. I like this sermon already, don't you? Eat a good meal. Now, if that doesn't sound very wise or very profound, remember what we said just a moment ago. Oftentimes, it isn't the big things that help us live the good life. It's the little things. And one of those little things is a good meal with the people that we love. Throughout Scripture, eating a meal is associated with fellowship, and it's associated with celebration. For instance, in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were commanded to keep seven feasts every year to commemorate and celebrate God's blessings and protection over their nation. In the New Testament, we're told that the early church broke bread from house to house, eating their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Revelation 19 tells us that one day in the future, we, the church, will sit down to a great meal in the heavens with our groom, Jesus Christ. The Bible calls this the marriage supper of the Lamb. We even follow this pattern today, don't we? For example, when we go out to meet friends or family or go on a date, we usually go to a restaurant, don't we? And we sit down and we enjoy a meal together. When we fellowship as a church, you guys remember those days back before COVID like 20 years ago? We'd sit down and fellowship and have a meal together as a church. And you know what? We're going to do that one day again soon. Amen. That's coming. It's coming. But that's important. We do that as a church. Why? Because it builds that fellowship. That's living the good life. When we celebrate our birthday, we eat cake and ice cream with our loved ones. And here in just a few weeks, families all across the nation will get together and have a grand meal. Turkey and mashed potatoes and gravy and pumpkin pie and hold the cranberry sauce. Amen? Okay. We'll celebrate Thanksgiving, won't we? And we'll praise God for his blessings and we'll do it again at Christmas time. Why do we do this? Why do we eat? Well, besides the simple fact that we like food, there's something about sitting down to a common table and breaking bread with the people we love that is intimate and special, and it bonds us together. And besides the social aspect of eating a meal, the truth is that God made food and drink for us to enjoy. It's part of the goodness of his creation. Food is not just utilitarian. It is not strictly for sustenance. God gave us a tongue with taste buds that we might savor food and drink and enjoy its textures and its flavors. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And of course, the challenge is enjoying food, but not enjoying it too much, right? As we all know. As simple as it sounds, King Solomon is saying to us here that one key to a good life is to eat a good meal. And if your family's like mine, the drive through is always a temptation, especially when you've had a long day, as one has said, a heart attack in a sack. But we need to make time whenever possible as individuals, but also as families and friends, to sit down 
and enjoy a true meal together whenever we can, to bow our heads and say grace together, to visit with one another and laugh together. We need to eat our bread with joy. That's what the scripture says that we just read. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine or your Diet Coke with a merry heart, for this is a foretaste of heaven. It is good and it is glorifying to God. It's also a great time to have a family devotion, just saying. Solomon adds one more very interesting little statement at the end of verse 7. He says, For God has already accepted your works. Now, this does not mean that whatever we do, God approves of it. This should not be taken as blanket permission to commit whatever sin we like, obviously. But rather what Solomon's getting at here is that there is always a temptation to say, well, I don't have time to sit down and enjoy my food or my drink. There's still more to do. And so we don't allow ourselves that pleasure because we, have, we feel guilty for not having every single thing on our to-do list checked off. Solomon's telling us here in this verse, chill out, relax. If any of us wait until every single thing on our list is done, to sit down and enjoy a good meal with the people we love, it will never happen. This is what Solomon means when he says, God has already accepted your works. If you've done the best you can for that day, and you've done it as unto the Lord, there is a time to call it good enough. Life is too short to work ourselves to death. So here's your homework for this week. At least one night this week, hopefully more, Make it a point to sit down at your kitchen table or at a restaurant table if you prefer and surround yourself with family and friends and just enjoy a good meal to the glory of God. Order the appetizer. Order the dessert. Savor the food. Savor the drink. Savor the company. And most of all, make time to thank God for all of it because it all comes from Him. That, my friends, that right there, that's living the good life. That's living the good life. Let's keep reading and see what advice Solomon has next for us. Chapter 9 and verse 8. He says, Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. And here's how I'm going to summarize that. Here's the second key to living the good life. Keep a good disposition. Keep a good disposition. In this verse, Solomon uses two metaphors that would have been readily understood by the people to whom he was writing, but may require a little explanation for us. Both the objects referenced in verse 8, white garments and then oil for one's head, refer to how someone in that day would adorn themselves to attend a feast or to attend a celebration. If you were going to a party or some kind of special celebration in Solomon's day, you wouldn't wear your dirty old rags that were stained and dusty. You'd pick out the nicest, newest garment that you have, and you'd get that sucker as white as you could and new-looking as you could. As for the oil on the head, it was a custom in that day when you attended a special feast or celebration for the host to pour oil on his guests' heads. This was considered refreshing and revitalizing, and it had a pleasant odor or fragrance. And it's really weird-sounding to us, but it was normal practice for them. So what does all that have to do with what Solomon is saying here in verse 8? Solomon's basically saying to us, 
Approach every day like it's a party day. Approach every day like it's a feast day, like you're going somewhere important. He's saying when you get out of bed in the morning, put on your good clothes, or at least your clean clothes. Comb your hair, brush your teeth, put a little splash of oil on your head, or we might say cologne on your face, or where do ladies put perfume? On your neck, your wrist, something like that. Carry yourself with a little spring in your step and a positive disposition. Life is too short to walk around like a spiritual Eeyore, always groaning and moaning and looking like someone shot your dog. Life is also too short to walk around looking like you just rolled out of bed. Rather, if you'll do what Solomon describes here in verse 8 and put on a good disposition and a positive attitude and approach every day like you have special places to go and important things to do, you just might start to believe it yourself. Here's the truth. If you're a child of God, you do have special places to go. And you do have important things to do because the Bible says that you are an ambassador of King Jesus. You represent the King everywhere you go and in everything you do and with everyone that you converse with. So live like it. Act like it. Carry yourself with a positive, godly disposition. Let your garments be white. Let your head lack no oil. And if you do this, you will find that's living the good life. Let's keep going and see what Solomon says next. Verse 9. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Here's the third key to living the good life. Cultivate a good marriage. Cultivate a good marriage. Now first, let me acknowledge that God does not ordain marriage for all people. Some people God has given what 1 Corinthians 7 calls the gift of singleness, meaning that singleness is a lifestyle to which God has called them. If you're familiar with Paul's teaching in the New Testament, he makes a strong case why being single can be a tremendous blessing and in some ways even an advantage over being married, particularly when it comes to serving the Lord. So certainly you don't have to be married to live the good life, and I just want to make that abundantly clear. At the same time, marriage is what Solomon addresses in verse 9. So let's talk about it for just a moment. Solomon's talking to husbands here about their wives, but the wisdom applies equally to wives with their husbands. And the wisdom is very simply this. Live joyfully with your spouse. Your spouse, even though it may not feel like it some days, is one of the greatest gifts that you will ever receive from God. As Solomon points out to us many times in this book, including in verse 9, we live in a world in which much around us is vanity. It's worthless. It's pointless. It has no eternal significance. But brothers and sisters, marriage is not one of those things. Marriage, biblically defined as husband and wife, is a sacred estate. 
first and foremost, marriage is sacred because it's through our marriage that we as Christians present a picture to the world of Christ's relationship to his church. That's what it teaches us in Ephesians 5. It says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And likewise, it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. This is why we must cultivate our marriage and contend for our marriage at all costs. It's not just about us. It's about the picture that we portray to the world of Christ and his church. Second, marriage is a sacred estate because in God's perfect will, it is the very foundation of the family and the institution that God ordained for the raising and training of godly children. And by the way, that's not to say God can't use a faithful single parent to raise godly children. He certainly can and does, as we all know. Nor is it to say that you must have children to have a godly marriage. God, for his own reasons, doesn't allow every couple to have children, and we understand that reality as well in this fallen world in which we live. Nevertheless, marriage is sacred because it is God's intended design for the family and for children. Third, marriage is sacred because it is the highest and most noble form of human companionship. In Genesis 2, God looked to Adam, whom he had made from the earth, and said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And as we know, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and from his side formed the woman Eve. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And the Bible says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In a healthy marriage, husband and wife become one. They become one in heart. They become one in mind. They become one in flesh. There is no other relationship like it in all the world. And so, yes, marriage is hard work. Yes, there are times you want to wring each other's neck. There are times that you feel like quitting and giving up and walking away. But when you keep those vows that you made on your wedding day and you fight for your marriage and you stay faithful to one another, through good times and bad, through thick and thin, and you forgive one another's shortcomings, and you stay together all the way from rocking babies to rocking chairs, that's the good stuff. That's the good stuff. 1 Peter 3 says that husband and wife are to be heirs together of the grace of life. In other words, God made husband and wife to enjoy life together. Rejoice in your spouse. Enjoy them. Love them. Hang out together. Have fun together. Grow old together. That's living the good life. Let's look at verse 10. Solomon says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. It always ends up with a grave with this guy, doesn't it? That's all right. Here's the fourth key to living the good life. Put in a day's, excuse me, put in a good day's 
work. Put in a good day's work. Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Because once you go to the grave, you'll no longer be able to work. You'll no longer be able to contribute to the world. Here's a biblical truth. Ready? It is good for man to work. It is good for man to work. Some have mistakenly concluded that the necessity of work is a product of the fall. That if man had never sinned, we'd all be sipping sweet tea under a palm tree somewhere. That's actually not true. In reality, if you look at the sequence of events in the book of Genesis, in chapter 2 it says that God took the man and put him in the garden to what? To tend it and to keep it. Work. It's not until Genesis 3 that the serpent comes along and man falls into sin. So my point is that work in the garden came before the fall. Work was not meant to be punishment. Work was meant to be a blessing. God made men to work, to be active, to have the satisfaction of accomplishing something and producing something tangible. And I like how Solomon says, whatever your hand finds to do. He doesn't put any qualifiers on it. This reminds us that it's not just quote-unquote religious work that brings glory to God, but all work. Any kind of honest work is sacred and pleasing to God when we do it with all of our might for His glory. Colossians 3 tells us whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men. On those days when you're struggling to find the motivation to work hard for your employer, to work hard for your boss for whatever reason, remember that as a Christian, ultimately, you do not work for them. You work for God, and that will help you. Don't forget what Solomon says at the end of verse 10. There's only so many days we can work. We only have a small window. Life is short. And so as we say in the Ozarks, you've got to make hay while the sun shines. You've only got so long. Now, some commentators believe it was this verse that Jesus was referring to centuries later when he said in John chapter 9, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no man can work. And the same applies to you and me. We must do the work that God has called us to today while there's time. There's no time to dilly-dally. There's no time to sit on our hands for the night is coming for each of us when we will no longer be able to work. As we conclude this point, think about this with me. You've put in a long, hard day at work. You get home at the end of the day, you change into comfy clothes, you prop your feet up. Maybe you climb into the tub and take a long bath. And you know as you wind down that you've put in a good day's work. That you've accomplished something worthwhile. That you've been productive. That's a good feeling. That's satisfying. That's the way God created us to be. And that, my friends, is living the good life. So, we've talked about these four keys to living the good life, and these are just good, practical nuggets of wisdom, just straight from God's Word. 
Very quickly, I want us to look at the last two verses in our text because they do tell us two important truths that we need to keep in mind as we consider these things we've discussed this morning. Let's read verses 11 and 12. Solomon says, I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time when it falls suddenly upon them. There's two important truths in these two verses, and very quickly here they are. Number one, life is not always fair. Verse 11 says the race doesn't always go to the swift. The battle doesn't always go to the strong, and so on and so forth. Rather, it says that time and chance happen to us all. Sometimes all you can say is, it just wasn't my time. Sometimes the ball just doesn't bounce our way. That's just life. We have to be okay with that. And we have to understand that that's part of living in a fallen world. And even more so, we have to believe that God is sovereign. And even when things in our life don't work out the way we think they should have, we have to trust that God has a better plan. That he's working all things for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Second, we've said this already today, life is short. Verse 12 says, we don't know our time. And just like that fish that didn't expect to be caught in the net, and just like that bird that didn't wake up that morning thinking he was going to be caught in a snare, so death can catch us when we're not expecting it. We all recognize that, don't we? None of us are promised tomorrow. Indeed, none of us are promised our next breath. The book of James says our life is like a vapor. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes away. So what's the big takeaway from these truths, that life is not fair, that life is short? Well, the big takeaway is that it just goes to show us we need Jesus. When you have Jesus in your heart, you know that even when life is unfair, God has a plan for you. It's going to be okay. When you have Jesus in your heart, you know that even if your life were to unexpectedly end, one year from now, one month from now, one day from now, one hour from now, that you're ready to stand before God because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. To put it another way, the good life, over and above everything we've talked about today, the good life is knowing Jesus Christ. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, Yet indeed, I also count all things loss, for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered all things and count them as rubbish. It's a polite translation. That I may gain Christ. Did you catch that? Everything else this world has to offer when compared to Jesus is rubbish. It's manure. It's just stuff. But knowing Jesus and living for him that's the good life. That's where it's at. Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted in him as your Savior and Lord? If not, you can do that today. You can do that right now. Cry out to the Lord. Admit you're a sinner. 
believe that Jesus died for you and rose again and commit your life to living for him and he'll save you and he'll give you eternal life. I'm going to ask the musicians, if they would, to come to the stage and we're going to prepare to have our closing song today. As they come, if you're here and you've never given your life to Christ, please talk to me after the service or talk to Pastor Bill. And I mean that. I'm not just saying that. Come and talk to us. We'd like to talk to you more about what it means to be a Christian. If you're here today and you have any questions about what does it mean to be baptized or how do I join the church, we want to answer those questions too. Just let us know. But the bottom line today is that if we want to live the good life, first of all, it's the little things, isn't it? But second and most importantly, living the good life is all about living for Jesus. And I hope that all of us understand that and realize that. Let's stand this morning. We're going to sing together. And we're going to sing a song of thanks to the Lord. I think you all will know this song. Give thanks with a grateful heart. He's worthy of that. Amen? Amen. Let's sing together.